Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. Today is Trinity Sunday, and in honor of that, I'll explain a little bit about that as we go in the sermon. But in honor of that, I want to talk a little bit about the Trinity today. My sermon is entitled, Higher Mathematics. One plus one equals two, right? Well, that all depends. When the new math, as it was called, came into my school in the 60s, and some of you may remember that as well, instead of counting in tens, from then on we were supposed to call base 10, We were expected to count in twos, or fives, or sevens, or fourteens. Our teacher didn't understand it very well, and we students were completely stumped. Until it dawned on my ten-year-old brain that, you know, we do that all the time anyway. That wasn't anything new. That wasn't new math. That was old math. Because we count in base seven every week. It's one day, two days, three, four, five, six. And then when you get to seven, that's one week. And then one week, one day, and so on. One, two, three, four, five, six, two. Ah, that's base seven. Oh, I get that. We do that. I seem to recall that's a biblical principle. We use, oh, I realized we use base 12 to count eggs. You know, we count when we count in dozens. That's base 12. We use base 24 to count hours and days. If you count in base one, like computers do, one plus one will equal 10. It's what they call higher mathematics. So how about this equation? One plus one plus one equals one. It's just higher mathematics, the highest mathematics of all, the mathematics of God. Today is Trinity Sunday. You know, after celebrating the revealing of the Son of God from Christmas through Easter, and then celebrating the revealing of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Christians then affirm the full revelation of the threefold nature of God on the week after Pentecost, hence Trinity Sunday. Now, the Western Church, of which we're a little part, the Western Church was slow to set aside a special day for the Trinity because, as one pope put it, early pope put it, he said, Well, every Sunday is Trinity Sunday. Yeah, and in a way that's true, but then, you know, folks reasoned, well, you know, technically, 
every Sunday commemorates Easter. I mean, that's why Sunday is our holy day, because Jesus rose on a Sunday. So every Sunday remembers Easter. And nevertheless, in spite of that, we also have a special day and time set aside for Easter. So by the same logic, why not a special day for the Trinity too? And so by the early 10th century, many congregations were reciting the liturgy of the Holy Trinity on the Sunday after Pentecost. And so with unaccustomed swiftness, by the 14th century, the Catholic Church decided to go along with it and recognize it. It only took 400 years. And Pope John XXII authorized Trinity Sunday for the whole church, which means that despite a slow start, Christians have been celebrating Trinity Sunday for more than 1,000 years. And now, at last, 1,000 years in the making, KPC2. <laughs> the Hebrews had a very straightforward concept of God. One God whose spirit was his active force in the world. That's as it was expressed in one of the oldest creeds of Israel, the Shema. In the Shema, it's in Deuteronomy 6. You know, probably know this, some of you by heart. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Judaism is one of the few monotheistic faiths. The others, Christianity and Islam, got it from the Jews. No other world faiths are genuinely monotheistic. They're based on nature or ancestors, and they look around and they see multiplicity everywhere. Even those that might have one supreme God acknowledge many lesser deities as well. The only monotheistic religions are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Judaism did not base its faith on nature or on their ancestors or something like that. They based it on revelation. And God said, there is one God alone. Now, the book of Isaiah, especially chapters 40 through 45, echo this unique singleness of God over and over. Let me share a few verses. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who's like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and set it forth before me. Is there any God besides me? There is no other rock. 
I know not one. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make weal and create woe. I, the Lord, do all these things. It's from chapters 43, from 44, and from 45. Not only are we to have, as it says in the Ten Commandments, no other gods besides him, there just isn't any other God besides him. Only lesser spirits, oh, his angels or imposters and frauds. And the one Lord God is one. But even within the Old Testament, there are hints that the oneness of God might be a little bit more complex. You know, in the great creation epic, in Genesis chapter 1, God starts talking to himself. I mean, when you're the only one there, I guess that's what you have to do, right? If you want an intelligent conversation. But God talks to him and says, let's make man in our image, according to our likeness. Now, God, listening to himself, thought he had made a pretty good suggestion. And so, we read, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, notice that God talks to himself in the plural. We, us, our. It, now, is this just the royal we? You know, the way kings talk when they're presuming to talk on behalf of everybody else? Well, the problem is it's the only place in the Bible where God talks to himself in the plural. There's something more profound here. Because when God does then create a human being, he makes them, them, two of them in this case, let's we make them like us, namely more than one. It implies that the one God exists in some kind of relationship to himself within himself and makes humans to be in relation with others. And he calls that our image, the image of God. Another instance, <clears throat> another instance comes a few chapters later in Genesis, this time in chapter 18, starting at verse one. And let's look at that passage. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. And he looked up and saw three men standing near him. 
And when he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread so that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you've said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it, make cakes. Abram ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Okay, three, three unexpected visitors appear out of nowhere. Abraham hurries to welcome them with a good meal. Milk, prepared yogurt, pita bread, veal stew. It's, that's, by the way, is the Middle Eastern equivalent of our sweet tea, pimento cheese, cornbread, and fried chicken. <laughs> it's about the same. And he makes sure, he stands by to make sure they get enough to eat. Now, verse 1 says that this is expressly about how the Lord appeared to Abraham. But throughout the story thus far, it's accentuated that there are three visitors. Abraham sure cooked for three. But then they start talking with Abraham, reassuring him that within a year, God's promise will be fulfilled. Sarah will bear a son of her own. And Sarah, eavesdropping, sort of chuckles at that idea. And then we read, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. Right there in verse 13, and another nine times in the following verses 17 through 33, nine times, it is specifically the Lord with whom Abraham is speaking. The one God appears to Abraham in the guise of three persons. Now, already by the third century AD, the Christian professor Origen recognized that this story prefigured the Trinity of God. One God in three persons, working in concert and speaking with one voice and will. Now, even during his lifetime, Jesus' disciples sensed that he was more than a mere man. Jesus had a special connection with the Father 
the God whom he called Abba. All four Gospels show rare unanimity that in Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven declared, you are my son, the beloved. Now, traditionally, son of God was a royal title for the anointed king of Israel, including the, and that included, of course, the anointed one to come. Anointed one is, we know it as a Messiah or Christ. It's the same word. And we find that, in fact, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, calling the Messiah to come the Son of God, intentionally, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's why the high priest then challenges Jesus at his trial, asking, as Mark tells us, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? See, what he's asking is, so you think you're the anointed king of Israel? Now, the disciples, of course, as always, understand nothing until after Easter. The demons might cry out in terror before Jesus, you are the Son of God, but the disciples, they they must have been gawking at the fireworks and missed the meat of what was going on. Just saying. And when Jesus is raised from the dead, though, and appears to the disciples, it's as though the coin finally drops. They realize Jesus really was the promised Messiah and the King of the Jews, and more, that he he stood and stands in an utterly unique relationship to his Father God. He's the Son of God who shares the very power, the will, the identity of God the Father. Doubting Thomas can only fall to his knees before him and exclaim, my Lord and my God. The first Greek-speaking disciples write hymns celebrating how Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And how, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And the Apostle Paul sees a vision of Jesus on the way to Damascus and immediately recognizes God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That is, in the light of Easter, we realize that Son of God is far more than just a traditional royal title, that Jesus was literally God incarnate among us, the only Son of the Father who came to save us. Now, with the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost, another person comes into the equation. One plus one plus one. The Holy Spirit was the breath 
and the fire of God, known from the stories and the prophecies of the Old Testament. But those who experience the Spirit know He's not just some impersonal force, but has a purpose and a will and an identity. Not an it, but a he. A he not in the sense of necessarily being masculine, but in the sense of being a person. The third person there by the oaks of Mamre. God is one in will and purpose and nature. Writing to the discordant, badly divided congregation in Corinth, Paul urges them to reaffirm their unity, their oneness, and their love in the faith to reaffirm their love and their respect for himself and for all of their leaders. In closing his letter, he calls them to live in peace. Turn with me, if you would, to the end of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verses 11 through 13. Paul writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, Farewell. Put things in order. Listen to my appeal. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. In the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, be with all of you. Now, the key words in this closing tell the whole story of what was going on in Corinth. That is, what they weren't doing or needed to do. Order, agree, peace, love, peace, kiss, Greeting. I'm surprised he doesn't throw peace in there again. And then Paul closes with a benediction. Now, he did not create this benediction. It's a traditional formulation from the Greek-speaking church before him, harking back to the early days of the Christian movement. That is, within, oh, probably the first eight to ten years at the latest. It fit with what he wanted to tell this squabbling bunch of Corinthians with its themes of grace, of love, and koinonia, or communion. <clears throat> the way the God is, is the way the church should be. The unity of the church is prefigured in the unity of the Trinity. Grace is the mark of Christ, through whose sacrificial self-giving the grace of God has saved us. We didn't deserve it. That's why it's grace. 
God's favor freely given and unearned. And we, that is the mark of Christ. Love is the mark of God the Father who planned and purposed our redemption and sent his beloved son for our sake. And communion or koinonia, which means having all things in common, that's the mark of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit abide in an inner harmony of grace, love, and fellowship. One plus one equaling one. Now for the next, <coughs> oh, for the next, I don't know, 500 years, about 500 years, Christians argued over the nature of God. You see, God may be one, but we sure don't act that way. They wondered, how can, God, how can the Father be God, and Jesus be God, and the Holy Spirit be God, and there still only be one God? How can each one be God, yet each one distinct and unique? And so arose the doctrine of the Trinity, or triunity of God. God is one holy and completely one, and at the same time, God is three, holy and completely three. Three in one, one in three. His threeness does not compromise his oneness. His oneness does not compromise his threeness. The theologians even got pretty technical here. One substance or divine stuff and three uh, distinct persons and revealed personalities. And they start using these hypostases. This is, a, this is a state of being up and above and underlying the state of being in which you see them. We don't talk that way. We don't use the word substance or person in the same way anymore. So how can we picture and explain the Trinity to God, God's higher mathematics, especially to make sense of it to someone who might not know the Lord and who might not know anything about the Trinity or have problems with it? Throughout history, people have tried to come up with pictures and illustrations to make sense of it. Now. Bishop Augustine of Hippo, North Africa, the famous Saint Augustine, he suggested the analogy of a love relationship. You have the lover, the beloved, who is loved, and the love that ties them together. Three distinct beings or qualities, but they're united in one. Patrick of Ireland famously used the shamrock, Three distinct lobes forming one leaf. I've heard folks today use the illustration of a light bulb. Three distinct aspects, the bulb, the glowing filament, the light. But it's one inseparable thing. 
or lightning, you know, the electricity, the flash, the heat. Now, most analogies aren't really that helpful. They only go so far. Some analogies are just plain wrong. You know, like comparing God to a woman who is at the same time wife, mother, and daughter, which means God just wears different hats at different times. And that, that uh, understanding was called modalism. And just so you know, it was rejected by the church, oh, about 1,500 years ago. So back to the drawing board. Now, I like the analogy of a hologram. Now, a hologram is a three-dimensional picture. I mean, you can walk around it and see it from all the sides, and it's a three-dimensional picture. And the way you do it, you take an object, put it on... <laughs> put it on a stand, surround it with a tube of film, hit it with a laser beam, the light refracts in every direction and is captured on the film. If you look at the film, you see the object in three dimensions. Now comes the amazing part. If you take the film and cut it into three pieces, We'll say three. You could cut it in as many as you want. But if you cut it into three pieces, you would expect each piece to contain one-third of the picture, right? That's not true. What happens, each piece contains the entire picture. Each piece contains the entire picture of the whole object. Now, if you could take those three pieces and fuse them back together, we don't have the technology to do that yet because nobody's figured out a reason why they should want to do that in the first place. You know, the idea is if you, don't want to, if, you, if you don't want it separate, don't cut it apart in the first place, right? But theoretically, in, in theory and mathematically, you could take those three pieces, rejoin them into one, and you will not see three pictures side by side. It will again be one picture. No, don't look at me like that. I didn't invent this. It really exists. So I think of the Trinity like a hologram, and I really love this <coughs> because so many of our images are based on matter, on mass. God doesn't have mass like we have mass. Bodies like this. A hologram is basically light. I like that. That God is light. So here, imagine the Trinity like a hologram. God is the picture. Father, Son, and Spirit are three pieces of the film, each of which separately bears the whole imprint of God, together bears the one whole imprint of God. One and one and one equal one. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity says, at the very least, three important things about God. First, God is bigger than our understanding. 
The Hebrews meant the same thing when they said God is holy, that is, unlike anything else in the world. So different, we can't understand him. Certainly, can't understand him all on our own. And that's a good thing. How feeble and puny would God be if we, if we, thick-witted and clumsy human beings, could figure him out? People who insist on understanding God only want to suppose they could therefore control God. You can't control God. You cannot grasp God. You cannot fathom or figure out or second guess God. What a lousy God we would serve if you could. They want a lousy God. I don't want a lousy, puny God. I want a God who's mighty. I want a God who's bigger than the universe. I want a God who is inscrutable and unfathomable. And yet, who inscrutably loves me and you. So the Trinity reminds us of the bigness and the complexity of God, and it presses upon us maybe a little bit of humility in the smallness of our own human understanding. And we could all use a little more humility. Second, the doctrine of the Trinity reminds us that God exists in His very nature in relationship. At the core of God's own being is a relationship, or rather we could say a network of relationships. That's what inspired Augustine to use the analogy of of lovers. Within God, distinctiveness and togetherness, separateness and unity exist in a dynamic tension. Love is in his very nature. That's why Jesus came looking for his lost creatures, came in human flesh in order to restore the broken relationship between himself and his creatures, you and me, because of love. And love is at the core of who and how God is. God values good relationships. And insofar as We're made in the image of God. It means you and I are capable of good, healthy relationships. The meaning and the value of life exist in relationships. This is where we can best mirror the image of God in our relationships. No wonder Jesus said that the two greatest commandments are to love God. That's a relationship. And to love your neighbor, that too is a relationship. It's all there, the very heart of God and the mystery of the Trinity. Third, the third thing is God exists in harmony within himself 
and so should we. God was even in harmony when it came to the incarnation and the passion. I know of one theologian who I shall not name, but who has argued that the passion of Jesus was child abuse, as God the Father makes his child suffer, and that that was, that was cruel. And so she rejects the vicarious atonement of Christ for us. But I'm thinking, what kind of image, what kind of understanding of the Trinity does this theologian have? She doesn't have one. Because for her, there is no unity between the Father and the Son. There is only discord and coercion and violence. But the gospel is consistent that Jesus willingly went to the cross to give his life as a ransom for sin. The Father and the Son were in complete unity and agreement. Now that doesn't mean it's fun, but they were in complete unity and agreement in the Jesus taking on the sin of the world and hanging there on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? The God-forsakenness of the cross was part of the unity between the Father and the Son and in expressing their love for their lost creation, for you and for me. Now, the things that divide the church and separate believers pale, pale compared to that. It pales. If the Father and the Son can be united in the passion of Jesus on the cross, we have no more excuses. So we pray and yearn for the day when we shall imitate the grace of the Son, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit towards one another in God's name. God's higher mathematics, one plus one plus one equals one. And I think that ancient benediction challenges you and me to continue that equation. You and you and you and you, each person separate and distinct, yet united in substance and purpose and will. If you look around at the other faces in these pews, you look around at other faces perhaps there at home or people you'll see during the day and then you add it up. If you use God's calculator, you will always 
come up with one. Let's pray. Lord, we stand before your mystery, Father, Son, and Spirit, from before all time and beyond all time, three yet one, one yet three, and yet joined in love and purpose and will. We can only bow the knee in awe at your majesty, your sovereignty, your complexity. And pray, Lord, that in some small way, we live up to that purpose, that created purpose and our calling to live in the image of God, to display the image of God, the God who exists in a loving relationship in all things. Make us one in your spirit. Make us one with other believers around this earth through Jesus our Lord. And bring us to a point of oneness throughout this cosmos, bound together in the love of the Father. And show us how we can testify to the oneness and the love of our threefold God here and now where we find ourselves. For we ask it in Jesus' name, trusting in all that he has accomplished for us. Amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.